This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. So I'm on my back with the firearm, grappling with them. They wanted it. I'm struggling with them. And one of the offenders actually pointed a barrel at my face and I put my thumb between the trigger and the guard and he's trying to pull the trigger You could never accuse my guest today of sitting idly after being medically retired from New South Wales Police after a distinguished career spanning 26 years, which included doing time at homicide and arson. But her passion, like me, was sexual assaults to the point she became an instructor in sexual assault investigating. But her career, her police career, was just one of Judy Palmer's many skills, or some may know her by her then married name of Judy Keegan. Since her forced retirement, Judy has been a real estate agent. She's part of a group called Singing Hands, which is a choir for the deaf. She's a driving instructor with NRMA, a Thermomix consultant. She's heavily involved in her local pony club and happens to ride a Harley Davidson soft tail heritage motorcycle as a member of the Ulysses Motorcycle Branch in Woi Woi, New South Wales. She's currently the president of the Ladies of Harley, a Central Coast Harley Owners Group. Hog, love that. Uh, if that's not one of the widest varieties of interests one has in this life, I will go heat. I wonder which one gives her or gave her the most satisfaction, and I'm guessing Judy likes people. Yeah, I know I'm taking a punt, but, you know, I think I might be right. There is so much in her busy life that I'd love to chat to Judy about, but initially I 
I'm going to be speaking to Judy about her policing career, what she loved, a few investigations she was involved with, and I'm assuming there's some that she will never, ever be able to forget. And then being medically retired due to, quote, work-related injuries, unquote. Anyway, we're going to find out about that and more. So welcome, Judy, and I'm actually quite surprised that you've found time in your busy life to put aside an hour or so for us here at NFI, but thanks for your time. Pleasure, Nora. Lovely to be here. Uh, Likewise. It's lovely to have you. So uh, you're in New South Wales. You would have had today's your first day of freedom. Yes, Narelle. 11th of October, Freedom Day, uh, when uh, us fully vaccinated can get out and, and start enjoying all the few things we've missed. And in particular, I went for a coffee with a girlfriend this morning and I don't mind telling you just how enjoyable that was. Very much missed. Oh, look, I can't imagine, Judy. I have uh, a sister in Metro Melbourne and she is just struggling is a, a bit harsh, but she just misses just going out with her girlfriends, seeing us, you know, her sisters and just those little things that we used to take for granted, just going in and having a quick cuppa like you have today. It must be so nice. It was. It was. Yeah. Now, Judy, through us chatting uh, before today, we found out that we'd both been to business college as young women and we'd both attained similar speeds with our typing, but It's your Pittman shorthand speed which enabled you to become a court reporter and that's what I couldn't attain. I got to think about 108 words a minute but it wasn't 110 which I needed to be a court reporter. Um, So can you tell us about being a court reporter because that's what happened. You were able to attain that, uh, was it 110 words a minute? It was actually 120 (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, words per minute. But look, after school, um, you know, uh, all those years ago, women went into hairdressing or secretary work. So we went to business college and learned all the finer skills of of typing and and dear old Pittman shorthand, which was such a skill in those days, but sadly it's not today. But I found it very useful in my policing career. Um, So, yes, I went to business college and and did well, um, and I actually did become a court reporter in the Supreme Supreme Court, look, only for a few weeks. It was very stressful, um, taking down uh, verbatim what judges and barristers uh, alike had to say. And and you'd only do 10 or 15 minutes and then the judge would say, excuse me, stop talking, we have a change of court reporter and someone else would come in and we'd go back and and transcribe it straight away, uh, typing it. Um, So, yeah, I was only there a little while. I just, um, just wasn't my thing to do day in, day out. But I've always found courts very interesting and I think that's where I fell in love with with the law and courts and the whole mm. process of justice. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I think I wanted to be a court reporter because for some reason I thought courts were an exciting place and interesting, um, just such a, a mixture and that was well, well before I ever thought of uh, being a, a policewoman. Like this is when I was about sixteen. But to actually, but to actually get one hundred and twenty words a minute—that is fast. That's impressive. Yeah, it was great. Do you remember how our notebooks was were divided in half, the line down the middle, so that yeah. you were quicker to come back to the starting point on the left than going right across? It reduced, you know, all these lovely uh, technicalities, but I can assure you it was the greatest skill that with typing in the police force, um, you know, for, for recording things I ever had and it was a great, great skill. And you know, I'm I'm sure that you would use it as much as I do. I still use it, mm. and I I always remember as um, joining when I first joined, it was everybody. Well, I was going to say everybody knew the lady that did the shorthand. Yes. I don't mean everybody, but it was a skill that people say, "Oh, are you the one that does that shorthand? Yeah, that shorthand." <laughs> Hey, I, I remember one time uh, giving evidence in court and I don't know about you, but I used to, a, as a police person, you dread court and you dread uh, having to get up in the witness box and, you know, give your notes and, you know, talk mm. and tell them what's happened. Cross-examined. Oh, cross-examination. However, I think you must have been like me a bit because 
I used to just wait for them to say, <laughs> do you have your notes there, Constable? Yes, Constable. And I used to wait and I'd say, yes, I have, and they'd, could well, I have them, please, you know, and they're all very uppity and, and I'd give them my notes and you could see the blood run out of their faces, you know, the, yeah. the defence or whatever. Did you yeah. have that? Just loved it. And, of course, you know, like yourself, oh, yes, Mr Sanso, I have my notebook here. Oh, yes, can I see it, Miss <laughs> Constable? No, you're referring, you know. And they, the blood would drain from their face, like you say. And then uh, I'd have a couple of barristers challenge me and he goes, read me that evidence and I would just read it and then he'd yeah. look at it again and he goes, read it again and I and, and then he would realise that I was proficient um, in Pitman shorthand and uh, it, it was a really great skill because he got so many admissions of little things that really I think made it a watertight case when it came to giving evidence oh, yeah. that I liked. Yeah. Yeah, I remember one time a judge said to me in a trial and uh, he but they asked for my notes, so I gave them. And uh, the judge said to me, and what sort of shorthand is this, senior? <laughs> and, I, and I had the I had the joy of saying to him, well, Pittman, Your Honour, and apparently the way I said it, it was like, you bloody idiot, don't you know anything about shorthand? You know, it was like, it was Pittman, Your Honour. Like, was there ever anything else? <laughs> he, he should have known, but there was another type of uh, shorthand from what I remember. Yeah, there was. But it wasn't yeah. as used um, uh, as much, and Pittman was the shorthand to use. And I still use it. I still write notes in it in my head. Yeah. It's a skill you never, ever lose. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, and and I used it until the oh, virtually the very last day of my career. Like, I've still got notebooks, um, you know, with all the shorthand in it, and I can still read You'll it. Read it's, it. Um, it's yeah, it's amazing. Mm. It's mm. amazing. Mm. Um, so, Judy, why did you become a policewoman? Tell us about that. Well, I had first-hand experience in seeing um, police officers. Uh, my father was a high-ranking superintendent, John Palmer, in charge of the CIB, and my brother was a uniformed officer, um, you know, in the inner western suburbs. And And I saw the pride that they came home with after a hard day's work, but making a difference to people's lives, helping victims, bringing people to justice, the feeling of worth of doing a job well done. Um, and I looked at it and remember this is 1981 when I joined and I was 21 and, and I said to my father, Dad, I'd like to join the police force. And he said, oh, geez, it's, it's a man's world. He said, um, I wish you the best. He said, but promise me one thing. He said, don't ever lose your femininity. And I said, no, Dad, I won't. And, and I really, I think, took that on board not to become one of the boys and swear and curse and, and drink like a sailor um, and and I think uh, I held my head high in that regard and and that was good advice mm. you know you say that about not losing your femininity mm. I always I don't think I I consciously felt like that but I know that I always wanted to look Oh, nice, I suppose. Yes. Like I would always put on, I mean, I don't wear a lot of makeup, but I think I always would probably put on some uh, foundation and I always, no matter what happened, I would always have on lipstick. Isn't that, like, I couldn't go anywhere without lipstick. I never have and I never will. Norelle. I'm exactly the same. And I think <laughs> Dad just didn't want to see me turn in and, and lose that lovely feminineness. But I'll just digress. Um, I did a job with my partner um, and it was a raid we had to go to and the TRG were there and the television cameras were there as well. So my partner's putting on a bulletproof vest and I'm putting on my lipstick. <laughs> What are you doing? I said, the camera's at you. He said, oh, of course. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, And you say about your femininity and that you, you know, that you couldn't, uh, you didn't want to uh, drink like them or swear or, mm, or whatever mm. it was you said, but, oh, dear, I've learned to swear terribly. Oh, yes. the F-bomb <laughs> comes out far too much in my vocabulary. Me too. <laughs> Only the wrong moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so so can you give us a snapshot of your 26-year career with New South Wales Police? Gosh, how long have you got? Um, so, yeah, I joined as a young constable at 21. Um, I did five years in uniform and I um, passed out from the Redfern Police Academy in a skirt, stockings, shoes, um, and they gave you a handbag for your gun, your oh, handcuffs, yep, yep. and a towel that had police written on it in case someone should vomit on you or you needed to wipe your hands or something (laughs) so let me assure you the towel went the handbag went I wrapped um, my gun and my handcuffs in one of the fellow officers belts um, and off I went um, doing all of that but it was really difficult in this stupid skirt so I was the very first policewoman in New South Wales to wear the collots that you may or may not see on some female officers now. Um, and I got in the newspaper, it was a big event, you know, an officer and a lady and wearing collots. Um, and after five years, I soon tired of accidents, domestics and death messages. Um, I felt I had more to give as a person to my community. And I really love the thrill of the chase. So I decided to go into criminal investigation. Um, where I started out and I went to an eastern suburbs detective's office as a brand new, you know, plain clothes officer. And when I arrived, they said, oh, hello, Jude, uh, have you got a, a duty book? And I said, what's a duty book? That's how much I knew, which is a duty book is something that police used to record all their daily events in, who they spoke to, where they went, and it was quite an official record. I'm sure it's all computerised now. Um, so as I, I was on a big um, learning curve, but I was always told that you have two ears and one mouth, so hear twice as much as you say. I took that in mind, knew my place, learnt a lot um, and and grew from there. Mm. You know, you talk, I think we might have to explain that to our listeners when you talked about passing out in your skirt and your handbag. <laughs> passing out is, is not, uh, although you can... Uh, faint from the pressure, can't, can't you? Of, of the day. Uh, you know, of the day, that's right. But you might just explain what passing out is. So sorry, Norella. Our passing out parade in the New South Wales Police Force um, is held at the Academy. It used to be at Redfern where I um, passed out from. It's now in Goulburn, of course. Um, and it's the culmination of all your training, of which was 12 weeks at the time. Can you believe it? Um, and we're having mm. passed all academic and physical um, tests. You are uh, at the academy and you actually swear in front of the commissioner and dignitaries. Um, you give an oath to, uh, yeah, protect the community, your fellow officer on the Bible, and you take the oath. And that's a very moving moment. And we all throw our caps in the air. Um, and our first station uh, is given to us and off we go Monday. Yeah, walk in the front door. My first station was Chatswood. I had my hat and my uniform on. And that was the last day I went through the front door. I went through the back from there. That was a bit of a thrill. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was the last day you ever wore a hat because you I didn't. Think it was. Oh, those hats! Those Seriously. hats. I lost mine once in the station, and the boys filled it up with water, tipped it upside down, and put it in the freezer. <laughs> so when I found it three hours later and put it on my head, I was all saturated. <laughs> you know, I've spoken to many people about the handbag. Like, really. What a ridiculous piece of equipment was a handbag. It was the worst. It was a real granny type of handbag. <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't leather. It was some vinyl crap. Oh, yes. Uh, but the towel, I've never heard. We didn't get a towel. Yes, it was about, you know, 30 centimetre screen. It, had, it was cream and it had police in blue writing. <laughs> so... Without being rude, where did you put the towel? Well, that was supposed to go in the handbag with your gun and your handcuffs. Oh, of course. Yeah. So seriously, I know. Oh, we've and oh, we've come a long way. Haven't I we? can't find oh. my lipstick. As if I can find my gun in a handbag. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon you might be able to find a gun in a handbag. Um, so, so what are the some of the more uh, memorable moments that you remember attending or being involved in in those early years? Well, look, uh, in the early years in uniform, especially in this straight skirt and this very impractical, impracticable skirt and top, um, I was on the truck uh, with a sergeant big guy um, and the truck was the main car when you're at a police station you have like a head car or truck and it's usually like the paddy wagon 
and we had big, you know, F-250s that were massive. Um, and so we had come across a motorbike that was stolen. So, of course, you do a check, you know, radio, can I have a check on this number plate? And, yes, it's stolen. So off we go chase, chasing this motorbike and he goes to a dead end at our Tarman and he, and he flies off and he jumps and runs through the bushes, which was at the back of our Tarman bowling club. So the Sarge says to me, off you go, you know, junior constable, <laughs> right, up goes the skirt around my hips, over the fence, and I'm chasing this guy. And this this big motorbike rider, he was a big guy with a helmet on and he's running, and I'm chasing him through the bush. And all the people at the Artam and Bowling Club could see the commotion down the hill. So I'm chasing him, but I'm losing him. He's, he's, you know, the gap between us is getting bigger. And I went, I've got to get this guy. How can I get him? So I didn't take out my gun. I just said, stop, police, or I'll shoot. And he stopped, put his hands up in the air and said, I give up, I give up. (laughs) And I ran up, handcuffed him, marched him back. All the people in the bowling club were clapping and back to my, my, you know, very big senior and he went, oh, my God. And I thought, how good am I? But I really just went, stop or I'll shoot, and he stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You would have have been a bit of a legend. Well, having having done that. Jeez, Jude chases all the all the crooks down, but um, yeah, and he was a big he was a big guy with a helmet on. I went, God, am I going to tackle him or catch him? But it was very funny. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so, is there uh, some sort of an incident or investigation that stayed with you, and why? Yeah. Um, and why? Particularly as a detective, I have a couple. Um, one was just an in- incredibly violent situation where an offender um, was drunk, coming home from the pub one night. Um, he broke into a car, found a replica pistol under the seat. Um, and this, to me, is a lesson is why we have laws as to why we cannot have replica pistols. So replica means it's unable to be fired. It looks like a firearm, but it can't be fired or discharged. So this particular offender got this pistol he then saw a ground floor house it was summer he climbed in he held the gun at the husband um, belted him up locked him in the bathroom and then proceeded to pick up their six-month-old child hold the gun to their head um, and said to the uh, the mother and the wife right do my bidding which sadly um, compiled of uh, being fed alcohol and raping her on and on and on for many many hours um, the offender eventually fell drunkenly asleep on the lounge naked with the gun in his hand. They very bravely um, crept out the window. And we got a call about 11 o'clock at night saying that there was, and they were visiting from overseas, they were an Irish couple, and they had run to the only person they had known about 10 kilometres away and raised the alarm. No mobile phones in those days. So we got a report that there was um, a very dishevelled couple with um, a baby um, unharmed but beside themselves and that the offender was asleep in their unit. So we called TRG and um, that's like our riot squad that go in armed, um, secure the offender and, um, and then we came in. We interviewed uh, that offender and um, he knew that the firearm was a replica but the husband or the the um the man that was beaten up and and held at gunpoint so that his wife could be raped didn't and when we actually told him that it was a replica pistol he just went to pieces because yeah he wasn't there to protect his wife and baby so um i was very proud of that job i worked very hard at at trial um the witnesses gave wonderful evidence. It was a very traumatic. They'd actually gone back to Ireland by then. So we got them back. They gave evidence. Um, and we got the fellow, I think, about nine years um, imprisonment. So we got up on all 18 charges, which means he was convicted on all 18 offences. And then um, our DPP, our legal body that prosecute our matters at trial, appealed, which is unusual, and we actually got him about 12 or 13 years. Um, so it sticks with me because of the violent nature, the fact that um, all offences were proven um, and he spent a long time in jail. Yeah, that's just that's just one of them. There's another one where I was the one being the victim, but uh, that's another story. But if you'd like to hear it, let me know. Uh, I'm letting you know. Thank you. If you feel, if you, feel you can tell it, um, I'd love to know. 
absolutely. This is this um, this event is actually one that changed my thinking um, and how real policing is every day. You can go to work uh, one minute you're doing a shoplift or the next minute you're investigating a murder or you're arresting someone at at gunpoint. But there was a gentleman, some gentleman at this particular detective's office that that I was off some offenders, and we had a firearms amnesty. And what a firearms amnesty is? It's something the government bring in every so often to actually get illegal firearms off the street, um, and people are free of prosecution. So that if they've got an illegal firearm or don't have a license or they got it by um, unlawful means, they can surrender it, and we get it off the streets. And I think it's a really great. A great idea. So we received information that these people um, had some shotguns um, and we did a search warrant. Now, I went with three fellow detectives um, and they said, oh, sorry, Jude, we've only got three bulletproof vests. Hmm, funny about that. So, uh, you know, in that day and age, apparently female detectives were, were a little bit dispensable. So I went with one of the detectives to the back door. The other two detectives went in the front door and um, the only person home was a lady who didn't speak English, an older lady, and so we're saying, call your sons, call your sons to the house, you know, they're their guns. You, yeah. So we are out the back and um, I'd actually said to my offsider, I said, look, I want to get this firearm out of here that we've seized. Give me the car keys and I'll take it to the police car while we're waiting for the owners to arrive. Well, as I'm walking down the side of the house, the two brothers drive down the drive at, at full speed, get out and jump me. So I'm on the back, on my back with the firearm, uh, shotgun, um, grappling with them. They wanted it. Now, whenever we seize a firearm, as you would know, it's operational procedure to check if the firearm is loaded or not or safe. Correct. Now, yep. I hadn't been told that by my offsider or if he'd done it. So, as you would know, Narelle, every firearm is considered loaded until you know otherwise. Yep. So yep. Um, these two are jumping on me and I'm struggling with them and one of the offenders actually raised it, pointed it at my face, the barrel at my face, and I put my thumb behind the trigger, between the trigger and the guard, and he's trying to pull the trigger to discharge oh the God. firearm. Now, I didn't know if it was loaded. But let me tell you, it wasn't long before I had three big detectives <laughs> on top of on top of these two offenders um and uh, and they were removed and yeah so i then dusted off i think i had a white skirt on that day dusted off the skirt and my stockings and popped it in the in the back of, of the car seat and gave thanks that um i was i was lucky to to think ahead and put my so you go to instinct mode but um it just goes to show how quickly it can change. They actually got a barrister and went to court. We all gave evidence and uh, they were acquitted. Yeah, so um, I actually went home. I was married at the time and I made arrangements to make my will, make my will because um, that was a bit close for comfort, that one. Boy. Yeah. So how, how did they win? How did they get acquitted? It it, um, it was an amnesty and it was some technicality or something. We all had to give evidence and, and what have you and, you know, these things happen. So um, it was only one, one offence. So under the amnesty perhaps they were given, yeah, the right of acquittal. Oh, hmm. oh but that's okay. So, so something like that, how did you, you said, you know, you brushed yourself off and mm-hmm. went back to work virtually. Yeah. How did that job affect you emotionally? Did you speak to anybody? Did you think, I can't because um, what are they going to say? No. <gasps> yeah. Um, and I'd like to think that in, in, in this day, I hope it is, that there's far more psychological support, briefings, acknowledgements. So I'd like to think today there might be a senior officer that might say, hey, Jude, you've had an incident. How about you go and speak to someone? But police, you know, we've got to have this big facade of bravery. Oh, I'm all right. We prefer to debrief over a beer at the pub, as you know, Narelle. So, um, yeah, that's what we would do and have a laugh about it um, and dismiss it. But um, it hasn't stuck with me as much as other things. Later on, there were some cases that certainly affected me. But funnily enough, I was um, married, single, no children, um, and I just went, 
and it just heightened my awareness of every job. Um, I've, locked, I've locked up shoplifters that have given me more hard times physically than locking up people for murder or armed hold-up or, or violent offences. So the, the actions of the offender certainly do not match the offence, if that makes sense. Mm. You just said then that you dismissed it or you, you, you think you have, mm. but I'm wondering in reality, how you could dismiss something where really your life could have ended right there and then on that day. Yep, and I thought it was. Um, Being younger, I think, and in the beginning, I think you deal with it a lot better because I personally feel that police work just um, steps up gets bigger, better, if, if and how they don't um, affect you. So I was about 29 at the time um, and and really um, excited to be um, a detective and doing my job and, and I think I just dismissed it as, look, this is part and parcel, but I was certainly far more heightened um, with every single matter I attended or person I came in contact with, yeah. Mm, I bet you were. And, you know, the thing, uh, please don't get me wrong, like the firearm in your face, uh, you putting the your thumb in between so it doesn't fire. But you know what really riles me about that job is the fact that there's three vests. Yeah, and it's me too. Just as, and it's just assumed that Judy woman. Has, why, why would Judy need a vest? Oh, yeah. she's a woman. Oh, I'm going to pretend, yeah, that was it. And I don't know if that was done deliberately. Um, years ago in general CI, like your stations of detectives, uh, bulletproof vests were very rare, you know, to get one was pretty difficult. So that was just, oh, okay, they're hard to get, but, oh, yeah, you're at the end of the, I, I drew the short straw, I'm dispensable. And that's the way I felt. I felt dispensable and, and yeah, just one of the many um, biased gender incidents. Well, you and I could spend the next hour at, or oh, a couple of hours talking about uh, the issues with gender and with how we were treated as females in that male-dominated world. However, I've also got to say, and I'm sure you would too, that I worked with some of the best policemen, uh, best men I have I had the pleasure of working with there there was there were just some fantastic policemen Here's a cool fact A crocodile can't stick out its tongue Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But it's those ones that treat you like... Well, they, you know, look, you you don't have the best duty. You don't I'm matter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Did you have the same experience with policemen? Like, did you? Oh, I was so yeah. proud to work with the finest that I would just look at them in awe. Particularly our homicide detectives. I met the most beautiful gentlemen doing murders and investigations that I was just in awe of. And uh, there was one in particular, and they've said, Jude. Just sitting on an interview with him, with this particular detective sergeant, you'll learn so much. And he was an absolute gentleman. He was never raised his voice, but smart. And he always got what he wanted, which was, and I learned a lot from that as an investigator. And I've actually had another fellow officer do a podcast who said that when she came to the station I last finished at, she said, and I got teamed up with the most wonderful, outstanding investigative detective I can name. And and she was talking about me and I I was really proud. Yeah, that was one of my better skills, my people skills. Mm. Wow. Because I can can remember working when I was at the homicide squad, I used to watch in awe Mm. Ron Idles. I don't know if you've heard of Ron. Ron He's on the TV now, Narelle. Yes, he is. He's Mm. got it. Yes, he is. He's uh, on Sunday nights, I think it is. Mm. But oh, that's just that's just one thing. He's on. Ron is like Ron everywhere at the moment. (laughs) But but I watched an interview with Ron Idles one time, and you're right. You learn so much. And Ron, I don't think I've ever heard Ron raise his voice. And I've worked with him a fair bit. But I've never heard him raise his voice. He never raised a hand. He never threatened. Nope. All he did was uh, listen, talk really softly. And I'll never forget an, an interview I saw Ron do with um, a man that had abducted and killed a little boy out near our Tullamarine Airport. And the offender was, I think he was an Indian man. And not that that's neither here nor there, but Ron interviewing him and this man, he'd panicked. And look, the bottom line is Ron actually, I'll never forget it, in the interview, the man was so affected, I suppose, by Ron, like Ron was just being so nice and kind. Mm. And the man, I think he tried to hold Ron's hand or something like that. And Ron didn't flinch. Ron, he just, it just went along. Anyway, Ron ended up actually kneeling beside him and the man was just beside himself crying into Ron's shoulder. Mm. I have never forgotten it. And, you know, that caused a lot of differing opinions within Victoria Police. People would, had said that's ridiculous, like fancy letting somebody um, they just thought that was way over the top. I thought it was one of the most powerful mm. interviews I've ever seen, mm. ever. Mm. And I really believe that most police are very empathic. We really do have a lot of empathy for our victims and our offenders. And um, I'm really proud to say that um, my father, a superintendent detective, he was in the homicide squad for years too. And, you know, he would get a Christmas card here and there from offenders who would always say to dear detective, you know, gentleman Palmer, you know, because he he was the same. He had a job to do, professional. Um, And I feel that when people yell and scream or officers do, they're out of control um, and they're not showing the professionalism that's required. But that's a very moving story, Narelle. And I used to use that tactic not tactic, but I used to use that gentle way with pedophiles in particular. And I found that it it just made them relax and they would tell you what you wanted to hear. <laughs> they would. Mm. And, and I found that too, Jude. And I found that even though inside what they had done was so repulsive, mm. but 
if we showed them that we were repulsed they were or disgusted, they're not going to tell us anything. And so I used to, and I wouldn't say I acted at all. I was actually really interested. Oh, I don't know if that sounds right, but I was interested in the psychology behind why they did what they did and how they felt and where did this come from. And and like you, I think they really they felt comfortable. And who else is a pedophile going to tell this terrible crime to? They're going to tell it to somebody who they think is interested. That's right. And I think that feeds part of that psychology as well. Whereas they expect you to come in banging desks and throwing books and things. Oh, no. And it completely puts them off guard when you're professional and empathic and you listen and they keep talking and we keep writing and then we go to court and convict them. That's when I feel the satisfaction when they are convicted. I don't care how I act in an interview room, so long as I act within the law and I convict them, that to me is my reward. Mm. I tell you what isn't our reward though is when we do take them to court and they get like your the offenders that you were talking about where they get acquitted or we can't get past committal. I, I used to feel a terrible failure when when I couldn't get the evidence over the line or we couldn't get it past committal. Oh, that feeling of, yeah, failure. These people, th- these people the, the victim and their families, they look at you you know, for strength, for um, support. Mm. And then, and you know, you say, look, we've got a good case and you try and say, look, you know, anything could happen here and you think you've got a great case and then you lose. Oh, it is. It, it's funny you should mention that, uh, Narelle, because I did have a very high conviction rate because I believed in doing the job properly. Um, I'm not going to do it half-hearted. And, and there were offenders, mm. I would say, that might say, listen, mate, I know you've done it. I'm not going to charge you today, but keep looking over your shoulder because when I get the evidence, you'll be charged. Um, And I would wait until I could. But one of the last cases I did up here on the coast was a a particularly violent um, domestic violence where the ex-husband had actually planned to come in with a shotgun, um, shoot the wife and take away their four children. The um, wife had been smart enough to actually put them on a plane to another state. He turned up. um, There was a fight um, with the the ex-husband. He had a shotgun and the boyfriend was a martial arts expert and she gave him a knife and there was a melee and off the offender ran with stab wounds in his back and in the melee so um he went up the road and said he accidentally fell off his bike and a very nice neighbor was looking after him and i i sent the car up there and i said don't let him move to cut a long story short very difficult case um but everyone was okay went to trial three-week trial um he had a barrister that actually summed up which means he summed up his side of the case for three days he spoke for three days um and I had lovely witnesses. They were very upfront, nothing to hide. And he was acquitted. And it actually started to erode my belief in the justice system. I oh, felt yeah. for my victims, I felt a failure. And um, I, I was really um, struggling with leaving a young family. I had young family then for three weeks. And it, it was all just a bit too much. But that feeling of failure is very real, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and there's nothing that can make you feel any better for a while because you've, you know, you've um, put your heart and soul mm. into into this job and then basically the court is saying you're not good enough, really. Yes, yes the jury. Um, jurors are, are reticent to convict, um, but I'm glad it's a um, 12 of them must agree. Uh, I bet you don't miss the call-outs, the on-calls. No. Oh. And, and being a woman, a female detective, pretty pretty rare um, in those days. Uh, yeah, all the um, sexual assaults or anything to do with children and um, I was an hour away a lot of the times and they'd ring up and I'd say, right, keep everybody there for an hour and I'd fly down the freeway and and, and sort it out. But, um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm really proud with the ones that I did. I'd often get flowers from my sexual assault victims or a thank you card and I still have those cards, Narelle. Yeah, I do too. Yep. yep. 
Absolutely. Showing those those victims, you know, it's um it's okay and getting them help and support and yeah, it makes a big difference. The the call outs and on calls, it causes such a disruption, doesn't it, to our social life, uh, ours, theirs, your, I, st- I still say us. I can't get, <laughs> I've been away from six or seven years and I still consider myself one of them, isn't it? Yes. It's funny. But, but it does, it affects so many aspects of your life. Oh, it, it does. Okay. I remember working Christmas after Christmas or you'd book holidays and they'd say, all leaves cancelled, there's a job on or something. You know, kids' birthdays, um, things like that, that um, people don't realise that, uh, yeah, that's that's it. We're 24-7. We're open 24-7. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> if uh, something happens, yeah, you call down. And you don't want to miss gathering evidence and, and presenting it in its best light. You can't be half-hearted about any job in the police. It must be done 100 percent yeah yeah I remember that a call out one time when I was working at a a station and I was one up meaning that you know that was that was it I was the only person on call and you know to, to go out of a night in a divisional van hmm. on your own three or four o'clock in the morning going to say a pub brawl or going to somebody's been assaulted or they've there's somebody outside their window a prowler mm. or whatever like that is that's tough stuff and I can remember one night being called out and I was half an hour away from where the station was and I got you know I got home at say I don't know 11 30 and I was called out at about one so I drive in do my stuff get home and I'm exhausted and it's about three o'clock when I get home and I'm in bed probably 10 minutes and the phone went again. Bottom line is I got called out four times in the one night and I was on for the weekend on my own because there's no one else. Mm. Yeah, it, it, Like that sort of stuff, that is, I don't know, well, I don't know if they can do that anymore. I think there's, um, they've realised that there's a lot of psychological damage and a lot of stress. Mm. <laughs> Who would have thought with policing and that you can't you can't do those hours anymore. It's got to be a good thing, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and Narelle, I refer to your call out, call out, call out. Not once did uh, I know you wouldn't have, uh, or did I whinge or complain? You just went and did it because our belief in protection of people is stronger than our own needs, and the protection of the community and that justice must be served. It, it's really, really um, powerful, and I think that's part of the appeal um, for people joining the police is that we need to serve, and we serve our community without, you know, fear or favour and and we all very very brave get up do it dark or not whether you've got a sore head or a, you know whatever you just you just get on and, and do it and that's the commitment that our officers do and I'm really proud of that. Yeah you're right and I can remember the last call out it was like you're kidding me aren't you like and D24 was saying I'm sorry I know you know blah 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 but you're right I had the last call out was a young seven-year-old who uh, he's, well, there was allegations that he'd been raped. And I can remember I worked all day. uh, I didn't get home and, I don't know, about four o'clock in the afternoon and I was on call that night as well and I thought if I get called out tonight, you just, it is just, yeah, you're right. You do it because you love it. You do it because you want to help people. That's why we join, isn't it? It's, Absolutely. Um, and our our personal needs go to the go to the back of the line. Uh, we have a job to do, and it's got to be done. And and people say, well, you know, how do you deal with being in the police? Well, I'm a professional. A job's got to be done. So you just do it. You don't you don't think about it. But it, it certainly takes its toll year after year for sure. Oh, yeah. And and so, Judy, working in a male-dominated world, as it was in our day, mm-hmm. uh, you experienced some difficulties, didn't you, 
some issues with sexual harassment and maybe some bullying. Can you t- and being a mum? Yes. Can you tell us about some of those yeah, difficulties? Absolutely. I always say that some of my biggest battles were fought within the walls of the police station, um, as opposed to outside. There was just one p- particular um, police de- uh, detective's office in particular that I don't know if it was a closed shop or a boys' club. I suspect they just did not want a female detective in their office. Um, they were very busy socially and um, extramarital uh, ways and I think that they felt threatened but all I wanted to do was get my head down, um, be a good detective, um, my offsider who I was um, teamed up with, was a lovely family man and he taught me so much and we got on so well. And we, we had a little bit of a us and them um, mentality against those um, doing that, but they took great pride in, in just annoying me um, with doing things around my desk and the phone and all of all of that. And as you say, one of those was going to that job with the firearms. Oh, there's only three bulletproof vests, just things like the things in your, in your pigeonhole, which is, um, for those that it's it's a little shelf where they put your paperwork, you know, for each officer. So, you know, you get things um, in there. But it did go on and I would go to the person doing it and I'd say, look, can you just give it a break? I just want to do my job. But no, it continued on by quite a few of them. So I went to my boss and he said, well, Judy, if you don't like the heat in the kitchen, get out of the office. So uh, that was the uh, response. I didn't want to take it further. There were no laws in place to protect um, women in the police force you just had to put up with it and try and do your job so um yeah it was uh, difficult and then I was the one of the first um female detectives to go part-time because I'd had uh, my daughter um and they didn't know how to deal with part-time detectives oh my god what are we going to do so um I was instrumental in getting that up and running and I actually applied for a job share partner um which caused a lot of ruckus. You can't job share a detective. And I said, well, yes, we can. So I was assigned um, another lady officer and we shared jobs and I I'd do it. She was inexperienced. So I would write out what to do on this case, go and interview this person, go and gather this evidence, go and do this. And she'd do that. And then I'd do the arrest. And, and she grew and learnt um, a lot like that. It actually worked really um, quite well. Call-outs were difficult. Um, my husband at the time was not in the police, uh, but he was supportive of me trying to do that. But um, yeah, it went on for many years at this particular um, station and, and was never really a problem any any other station. So I just... Um, feel it was um, akin to that macho chest beating type which I'd like to think is far less these days and that women can work on an equal footing uh, with men as we Mm. should. Mm. Yeah we could there's a lot of issues you know I I can remember having a camera um, put up in the days when we used to wear skirts I can remember you know a camera being put up my skirt and and a photo taken and to the point where you could actually see um, my cotton gusset from a pantyhose, like mm. humiliate, humiliating stuff. And, you know, to then go up on the board for everyone to say all sorts of stuff like that, you know, watching pornos, mm. you know, at, at uh, dinner time. And anyway, look, mm. as you say, it was a different world back then, but I don't know about you, but I couldn't go to anybody because they were all in it together. I mean, I was the only, fe- well, one of very few females. But anyway, look, New South Wales have had its fair share of issues with corruption over the years, but I know you're not the lone ranger there. Victoria's issues would take years of podcasts to cover and I won't be touching it with a 10-foot pole, don't worry about that. But I would like to talk to you about the culture in New South Wales police, which, like anywhere else at the time, was marred by cynicism, pessimism, glorification of alcohol, permitted sexism, the list goes on. But you never saw any corruption, I think you told me, but you did find out years later that it had been going on virtually under your nose. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and I refer to those powerful words, Neural, cynicism, pessimism, glorification of alcohol, permitted sexism. I saw all of it. Absolutely. But in regards to corruption, I, I suppose I sent out a vibe uh, very early that I won't see or be part of any corruption and um, it's not necessary to do your job well um, and we need to hold our heads high and be professional. 
But now, looking back, I think my father being a detective superintendent might have had some influence on if anything was going on, it was not going to be in front of me. So I think that was another reason why at this other detective's office I was not welcomed with open arms, even though I was a very hard worker and did everything by the book. And the boss loved me because we got such a great arrest and conviction rate. But but the other fellows liked to, you know, come in still drunk overnight and sleep in the corner and things like that. So if that's corruption, um, I might have witnessed that. Under ICAC, I actually went for a job with ICAC, an interview, and having read the uh, statute law of the ICAC role, corruption is defined as if you go and have a haircut during your lunch hour, if you go to the post office and pay your gas bill, I'm guilty. During work hours, I'm guilty. So that corruption, I think, you know, but regards to taking money or bashing or planting drugs, never, ever saw any of it. But it was when I left that I realised at this other um, detective's office where I was um, sexually discriminated and bullied, they were actually selling information off our police system about cars and vehicles and things to whoever knows what, but they were getting cash in hand for it. But I only found out about it years later, and that is the only level, the only level of corruption I knew about. And if I did, I would have done something about it because there were, isn't this ironic, Narelle, there were laws in place to protect and prosecute those guilty of corruption. But for us, being sexually discriminated and assaulted, there was no laws. How ironic. (laughs) It is, isn't it? (laughs) Again, women were dispensable. That's the message I got. Oh, Judy. Judy, Judy, Judy. Do you ever get that? What was that song? Judy, 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 do Do you love me? Judy, 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 do you care? Um, Your career was cut short on medical grounds. So was it due to one particular reason or an accumulation or can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, my physical um, work-related injury was physical. We were actually doing... um, training. Each year you have to be um, ticked off as uh, proficient in in physical um, bomb checking, searches, um, unarmed combat, things like that. So we had our TRG along and I was a detective, you know, in the suit and the heels and the stockings and my my offsider was away on leave. So I got paired with a lovely young, zealous young constable and we were doing arm bar sweeps and um, I did a few on him where you grab the arm and you use your foot to sweep their leg out and bring them down. Well, lovely young constable was very zealous and did that with me, but he more like spear tackled me (laughs) into the ground (laughs) and I got a neck injury. And um, so um, that sort of uh, just came to haunt me over the years. And then, of course, the psychological was cumulative um, but was actually um, when I went to a baby, I actually had my daughter um, and I came back after 12 months leave without pay. I had severe postnatal depression, which my bosses knew about, um, and I hadn't been back long and they sent me to a very violent baby murder. And um, I think you know oh. what that involves. It was it was a terrible family, yeah. Um, yeah. very poor, very drug-affected. The children were neglected terribly and, of course, with that, you know, you get um, post-morning, you've got to go to all of that. So um, myself and another lady detective um, did that case and that was sort of the be- beginning of the undoing um, for oh, me, yeah. sadly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've said many times that I can, ha- I could handle most things in policing but anything to do with children and I think we're, there's not many that aren't affected by investigations and jobs you get with um, neglected, uh, abused, assaulted children that have died. Nah, I, I, uh, I'm because it's all preventable. Well, yes, that's that's what I say. It need not have happened. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, look. Judy, unfortunately, we're a bit um, pressed for time today, but I did want to ask you a couple of things. I could talk to you about policing for the rest of, you know, the rest of the night. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But um, could you tell us just a little bit about your motorbike? And please keep in mind that I know nothing about them. So if I don't fall off my chair when you tell me, for instance, the make and model, the CCs, the KGs, uh, which would impress many, including my husband, (laughs) 
please don't be offended. Uh, tell us about your motorbike. I won't be offended at all. When I left the police force, I went, oh, what am I going to do with myself? So I went and, as you know, did real estate and what have you. And my, my dear friend Monica said to me, how about we plan a trip? to Italy um, and we go and ride a Vespa in Italy and I went I'm not riding a motorbike or a scooter don't be stupid and she said yeah. how about we get our license here and I said oh all right so I got myself a 150cc scooter <laughs> high powered as it is fell off it cried <laughs> got up and I went right so soon uh, Monica and I discovered that we wanted bigger better scooters and uh, she said look my husband belongs to the Ulysses motorcycle um, club down on the coast would you like to join I went I'm not joining some motorcycle club come on but I soon found a wonderful band of men and women from all walks of life who merely enjoyed riding motorbikes and what motorbike riding found for me was it was a challenge like everything in life I do like to better myself uh, mentally and physically so off I went and I, I learned from some great riders how how to ride but during that time I also found it healed me mentally through yeah, the police yeah. force drama through a poor marriage a divorce single parenthood I cried sometimes I laughed all on my own but I had to learn how to stay on that bike and, and it distracted me. So I eventually ended up at um, the Ulysses Motorcycle Group on their, on their committee as the webmaster and the secretary and, and I, I went on some wonderful trips. I've, I've ridden to um, South Australia, I've ridden to Victoria, Queensland, Tasmania, but um, I'm now riding a Harley Switchback, an 1800cc, 320kilo bike, but don't ever forget you've got to walk before you can run. So it's been a long process, but I still ride uh, with my partner and my friends and uh, girlfriends, and I'm, I'm really proud of it, and it is such a freedom. The wind in your hair and the bugs in your teeth, there's nothing like it. <laughs> uh, I hadn't thought of the bugs in your teeth. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Oh, dear, that's funny. And, and tell me about getting involved with Singing, the Singing Hands Choir. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. Tell, tell us it, what that is. It was beautiful. Once again, I wanted to learn a new skill and I've always sort of um, admired people that can do sign language. I think it's another another language. And um, so I went and joined Singing Hands and um, it was a group who would sign to a song. So we would sing whilst doing sign language and it was such a lovely group of, of people with some incredible skills and we would often go to a church hall and we would um, uh, do a show for hearing impaired people and uh, from my understanding when deaf people um, are at a concert or hearing something they can only feel the rhythm through the, the chair or the floor, they can't actually hear the voices but the minute we started signing and could um, communicate with them the words of the song along with the beat they were joyous. They were so joyous. Oh, and, the, and the feeling, again, yeah. of giving um, joy to someone was really rewarding and I actually learned to sign a little bit, which I have, have used in, in different situations, but a, a really lovely, enjoyable group. Yeah. Oh, how yeah. lovely. Yeah. God, they're, so, they're so lucky to have somebody like you. Oh. And, the, and the last thing, you're a, a driving instructor with NRMA. Oh, yes. No, yeah, within our remains. Yes, yes. Why on earth would a policewoman <laughs> choose to be in a car with a teenager who's learning to drive? What possessed you? Narelle, do you know how many parents of teenagers say, why would you want to do that? <laughs> um, it's because, as, as yourself, Narelle, for 26 years we were in police chases, we were professional drivers. You know, we chased down baddies and did slide skids and all this sort of stuff, which is a bit exciting, isn't it? Um, and so I thought, ah, oh, it's a walk in the park teaching kids to drive. So um, my son actually had a lovely NRMA instructor and I spoke to her about doing it. Because I've got a bad neck from my injury, I really can't lift a lot. So I thought, oh, I could do this and I love it. I just really love imparting safety towards our teenagers because it's a bit like swimming. If you're not a good swimmer, the consequences are pretty dire. So I really embraced it. I take it very seriously um, and the parents like that and I hope I'm making safer drivers on our roads. Mm, yeah. 
Well, look, thank you, Judy, for everything that um, you have done and you continue to do, but your service to the community, yeah. um, particularly in relation to young drivers. You know, I've interviewed a number of parents of, of young men who've been involved in fatal car crashes and with the utmost respect for them, the fewer of those heartbroken parents I speak to, the better. So uh, thank you, Judy. I think we might have to have a part two at some point at some point soon. <laughs> that would be lovely, Norelle. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and imparting you the um, the joy I have felt and the pride at being a police um, officer. And I'll never forget, you're always part of that blue family. Still am, always will be. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again, Judy. My pleasure. Thanks, Norelle. It's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.